let's say Pythagoras and Plato go sailing one day on the Aegean and there's a big storm and they both die. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. A perfect storm. Ah, oh, perfect. Ah. Uh, uh, perfect. Ah, yeah. An imperfect storm. Welcome to What The If, everyone. This is a show where we come up with new taglines every week. <laughs> <laughs> As I refine my tweets, etc. My latest one, here's, I think this is a good description. We learn real science through improv science fiction. That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. yeah. We imagine science fiction scenarios. Not science fiction only in the sense that we change something about the universe that shouldn't be changed, probably. Oh, that's, that's almost <laughs> always true. Yes. <laughs> we take off that label that says there are no user serviceable parts inside. We oh, just, yeah. We take that label off the universe. We yeah. ignore that. Anyway, welcome back to What the If. If you've been here before, welcome back. If you're new, welcome. Get ready to have your mind... Ift. <laughs> With me is Matthew Stanley. I'm Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker, appreciator of science, consumer hmm. of science, experiencer of science, as we all are. Yeah, I like it or not. Yeah. Matthew, how would you describe yourself, Professor? A historian of science, which means I uh, figure out how science actually works and then tell stories about it. Yes, actually works. For instance, what is some, what's one thing that people think, what's, what's the wrong stereotype people have? Uh, like we think about uh, scientific discovery as being a moment, right? Einstein sat bolt upright in his bed one night and said, ah, relativity, when actually it's 10 years of screw-ups and mistakes and late-night talks with his friends and going back and redoing things he had done before and finally figuring it out yes yes indeed and actually those are the great stories i mean the bolt upright is okay. pretty good yeah but uh they're yeah it's much more interesting to hear about how he's starving during a wartime blockade while trying to figure out his equations and going back to his college buddies asking for help and i think that's much more interesting yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely so being a historian of science as you mm -hmm. are, a man who time travels. Yes. Into the past. We noticed in the news, one of the latest headlines, a somewhat bittersweet news, bittersweet astronomy news uh, this week, about the Kepler telescope finally ran out of maneuvering fuel. Yeah. And we all know how painful that can be. <laughs> you know, it's like it's a Wednesday morning, you wake up and you're out of maneuvering fuel. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that the telescope has, has been going so, uh, it, it had such a long run. I didn't realize it, how long it had been, it's been running. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Kepler opened 
our eyes to thousands of exoplanets. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep, it made uh, looking for planets outside our solar system quick and easy, relatively speaking anyway. So it used to be a very tedious task. You'd have to examine one star at a time with complicated instruments called spectroscopes and then check that data very closely. But Kepler was able to look at hundreds or thousands of stars at a time and check them all. Much quicker, much faster process. Yeah, nine years. Nine years. Nine years. That's pretty impressive. 2009. Boy, by the time I was nine, I had not discovered a single exoplanet. I hadn't even discovered Tatooine yet. Whoa. (laughs) Hard to imagine. (laughs) Not until I was 10. So, and what was it about the telescope that allowed us to do these things? Kepler used the sort of weirdly intuitive but hard to pull off technique of looking at a star and waiting for a possible planet to pass across the face of that star, that is just to move by it, and then watching to see if the light from the star dimmed a little bit as the planet moved in front. Which is incredible. If you think, you'd think that the odds of that, this is what's so one of the amazing, one of the millions of amazing things about the universe, that the odds of that happen, the odds of a planet passing in front of a star that happens to cast a shadow directly in our direction. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what happened. In other words, there could be stars right. where planets, planets are orbiting, let's say, planets are orbiting almost all the stars in the sky. But they could be tilted in their orbits could be tilted in any direction, so they never actually, from our point of view, block the sun, block their That's right. sun. You never see it. Right. Yeah. So the solar system, the other solar system, has to be oriented uh, just so. So there's that statistical problem that you're alluding to, and then there's the problem that generally stars are real so much bigger than planets that the amount of light that a planet will block is quite small. Right, right. So you need to have a very sensitive detector that can look for these little, these tiny drops in the amount of light that we're getting. So that's very hard for a person to do, very easy for a computer to do. So Uh, the trick is just to loft that telescope and computer into orbit where it can then look for these things. Right, right. And and the fact that it discovered thousands of exoplanets, I believe more than 2,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. Means that, you know, if, if the odds of that, if the odds of seeing any, even one, uh, having a perfect alignment of one of these solar systems in, facing in our direction, means that that just tells you that from that they're able to extrapolate and say, wow, basically they've made the leap now and said there are more planets than stars. Right. There's even vast. That's right. So even so for each of those couple of thousand planets that we've actually found, there are certainly thousands more that this particular technique wouldn't be able to see. Yeah, that's in in fact, there was an article I was reading. I think it was in New York Times. It mentioned that they Kepler tweet tweet Twitter account was has been using the hashtag more more planets than stars. Hashtag more planets than stars. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'd, I'd be willing to accept that, yeah. Which is an unfathomable, fathomable number. 
It is a lot. It cannot be fathomed. It is many <laughs> fathoms deep. So, Kepler, interestingly, Kepler is one of those scientists, I think, if you, if you paid attention, you, you know, a little bit growing up in science class, you, you would learn about Kepler, Johannes Kepler, right? Yeah. When I, what I remember about Kepler most is that is it, I think he was the one that discovered that the planetary, ellip, planetary orbits were ellipses. Right. Yeah. And he came up with a, a couple of simple mathematical relations for explaining how those ellipses work. So usually, if you take physics one or astronomy one, you'll learn those equations because they're fairly easy to, to manipulate. So most people know his name through Kepler's laws. Yeah. Right. So we can see it's quite, quite fitting that they named the telescope that was looking it at indeed. planets yep. in orbit. Uh, in, around yeah, other because stuff. you can use his, you use his laws to extrapolate from the the data we get to determine things like how big the planet is and uh, how far out from the star it is. So even from these the tiny little information we get, just this little dip of light, we can use Kepler's laws to infer a great deal of information about the system. Yeah. Now, did uh, was Kepler? Did he have a moment, for instance, Einstein and I'm guessing Newton, there have been moments, Galileo, uh, where scientists made a discovery that was so clear and sharp that it was a really radical discovery. Uh, it came out, you know, shook the world, let's say. Was Kepler's work like that? Did he it, it was. And like we were alluding to earlier, with Einstein, we, we want these to be singular moments in which everything changed, but actually <laughs> it's an enormous amount of work spread over an enormous amount of time. So this great, so, so the reason it's such a big deal that the planets travel in ellipses and why it's such a big deal that Kepler figured that out is because that it had been a central dogma of cosmology up to that point that everything in the heavens was circles. Ah. And that was because the circle was the most perfect shape. And, you know, you see, if you look up in the sky, you'll see stars and the sun move around you in a more or less circular fashion. So then you kind of weld that to this, this platonic notion that the circle is the most perfect shape. And you say that it's the nature of the universe that heavenly bodies move in circles. So one of your jobs, if you're an astronomer, so Kepler lives around 1600. Okay. Right. So it's contemporary of Galileo's, oh, contemporary right. of William Shakespeare. Ooh, what a great time period this was. It was, would have been an interesting time to live, I think. Yeah. yeah. And if you were an astronomer, as, as he was, one of the tasks you would have is you would take measurements of where the planets are on the sky you know every night for a certain number of years and then you would sit down with your equations and figure out what circles best represented those motions across the sky right okay okay and then you would he would he would look up in the sky he'd note where the planets appeared in relation to the stars because the stars don't really appear to move related yep. to each other. All those, the, the fixed stars, yeah. Right, and the planets. And, and then, so, 
by looking up and and making note of how the planets moved over his head, he then sort of tried to imagine draw, he would draw the solar system in the way we often visualize it now, which is on a piece of paper looking down right at it yeah. in two-dimensional form. Yeah. And the assumption would be that you would then end up with a series of concentric circles around the Earth because the Earth was thought to be mm-hmm. the, the center. So this works, as you say, this method is essentially unchanged since like the first century. Okay, so ah. this is a very long tradition of doing this. Right. And this generally works fine until sort of the generation before Kepler when a couple of things change. One is Copernicus. So Copernicus writes his book. Not many people are very impressed with Copernicus right away. He doesn't have very good arguments for the idea that the Earth moves. But nonetheless, the ideas kind of trickle out there. Right. And Copernicus said, the Earth is not the center of the universe. The The Earth goes around the sun. So it so happens that one of Kepler's teachers was one of the few, uh, the technical term is convinced Copernicans, that is people who thought Copernicus was actually right. So Kepler learns about Copernicus early on, so that gives him a certain kind of mental flexibility, thinking about things might be different. And then the second thing that happens is this guy named Tycho Brahe, a Danish astronomer. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if we've talked about him. Very briefly, but yeah. one of my favorite characters. Yeah, Tika's, um, I mean, it's, so he had his own island, which he turned into a giant observatory and essentially had like slaves that helped him do astronomy. Whoa. He had a pet bear, liked to drink alcohol, picked fights with people, and had a fake nose. <laughs> yeah. Wow. A guy you love to hate. Right. <laughs> One of the things Tico does is he puts his his considerable fortune into making the most precise astronomical instruments ever. And this lets him make those initial observations of where the planets are in the sky vastly more precise than anyone had able, been able to do before him. Mm. And this was, this was really extraordinary. And he, you know, so he, uh, after the king of, the king of Denmark finally gets tired of his shtick and throws him out. (laughs) His shtick being? His shtick being things like tormenting his local peasants for astronomical purposes. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. That's a crazy thing. That's a horrible thing. It's totally a crazy thing. But, but he ends up after he gets thrown out of Denmark, he goes to Prague where he becomes the imperial astronomer to the the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm. And essentially it's on the value of these hyper-precise observations. He says, you've got to, if you're looking for a new imperial astronomer, I'm the guy because there's no one else who can do this kind of thing. So he was really good at the observations. He was not so good at the second part of the job, which was doing the mathematics, Uh calculating the, what the circles should look like. Right. So he hires this young mathematical prodigy named Johannes Kepler oh, to do the math for him. Did not see that coming. Yeah. Tico dies 
after, as he reports it, an embarrassing drinking accident. Wow. He dies after an embarrassing drinking accident. Well, so this is so this is Tico's self-reporting of his own death. So you can, what? You can take <laughs> <laughs> He's at a banquet with the emperor. As you, as you do. And he's drinking a lot. Yeah. So he's drinking and drinking and drinking. And he really needs to go to the bathroom. But he can't because you can't get up from the table while the emperor is there. No, certainly not. All right. So as Tico describes it, his bladder explodes. Yikes. And then he has a couple of days of horrible suffering before dying. Ah, so he actually did die. And his, yeah, then you say he described on. his own death. It was, be, yeah, on the way. Right. To- it's, so I should say it's, it's much more likely that he actually died of heavy metal poisoning due to his alchemical experiments. Whoa. Still, it's an awesome story. Heavy metal death. That's also something. Yep, that's also pretty good. <laughs> but what this means is that Kepler is then left with this giant pile of observations that mm. he needs to figure out in mathematical terms. Tico's family, though, wants those observations because they're worth money. Wow. So Kepler has to be doing this math kind of on the sly while he's doing these legal battles about whether or not he can use it at all. Man. So it so happens that Kepler decides to start with Mars, right? What's the path of Mars? So but basically at the same time, there was like an episode of Nova happening. An episode of Nova was happening at the same time as Law and Order. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's pretty good, actually. This is the kind of the first age of intellectual property in the modern sense. Ah. The idea that like a series of numbers or a page of words should have economic value or should be thought of as a a piece of property in the same way a physical thing was. So this is, this is, this is sort of the great innovations of the age is Mm. trying to think about these things Mm. um, in this material sense too. So Kepler's trying to figure out the orbit of Mars, right, the actual mm-hmm. path of, of Mars uh, through the heavens. And he can't do it because he sits down with, uh, he says, all right, let's say it's, I've got these observations of where Mars is in the sky. Let's figure out a circle that would explain where those, why Mars is in that position. And he tries one and it doesn't work. And he tries another and it doesn't work. And he tries another and it doesn't work. And he spends years on this. He calls this his war on Mars. Wow. And, and just because like we, we sort of know where it went, he got into the ellipses, which we'll get to in a second, but the, the idea that they were circles, that the orbits were cir- perfect circles, mm-hmm. was so ingrained that he went for years sticking with that hypothesis. That's right. Because it had worked so well right, for over a thousand years, that always worked. Ah, it wasn't ah. until we got until he got Tycho's observations that were so precise that he could see the difference that, that he could see the circle didn't quite fit. Ah. So as as you said, we we know the 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 answer is that finally he starts trying other shapes, and when he tries an ellipse that is a slightly squashed circle. That does fit Mars, 
very precisely. So you could think of this as his great moment, but actually it's the result of, of years of not just mathematical work, but legal battles as well. Wow, that's crazy. And when, when, when he suddenly said, mm, maybe let me try a so-called imperfect circle, mm-hmm. an ellipse being basically like an oval, squashed circle, did he feel like, ooh, I'm going to get in trouble? Like Galileo had gotten in a lot of trouble for his... <laughs> well, this is a little before Galileo, but... Ah. No, so the trouble he's worried about is not like somebody kicking in the door and dragging him off. That's right. not the kind of thing that is going on. Right. But rather, Kepler, too, is persuaded that the universe is a perfect, beautiful place. But the problem is that uh, – so it used to be that you could just point to a circle and say, that's how I know the universe is a mathematically beautiful place. <sighs> But he couldn't do that anymore. So he needed to find a new kind of mathematical beauty inside that new ellipse. So he had to he had to persuade both himself and others that the ellipse could still be a mathematically beautiful thing. Right. Now, this notion of the mathematically perfect, so so to speak, universe is clearly such a powerful idea. And what strikes me as so strange about it is that what's so perfect about a circle? I mean, yeah. you know, it's sort of like a... I mean, it's simpler. I, I don't know. So why were they... Why was that such a powerful thing that to break that idea would be heretical. You know, so a circle's perfect because, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons for it. One of them is that it's perfectly symmetric, right? No matter how you turn a circle or flip it around, it always looks the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Another one is the definition of a circle, right? Which is all the, all the points that's the same distance from a single point. Right. So the... The way you make a circle is so simple and reliable that you can always get a circle. And then you get things like pi, right? Every circle has the same ratio of its diameter to its circumference. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right, so this kind of universality that you get with a circle that you can't get with other shapes. Or even life in general, right? How much of your life... How many events in your life have a perfect ratio that always happens exactly the same way, right? Nothing. I mean, especially if you live on the L train, right? I mean, forget it. (laughs) So here's the what the if. This is a weird one. Okay. What if this aesthetic, the tyranny of aesthetics, aesthetic or, you know, uh, this tyranny of perfection so like this judgmental attitude towards certain shapes prejudice it's a prejudice right you know oh Mm -hmm. circle special if that didn't exist in science Uh, at least well i would say even in in current science certainly einstein talked a lot about that and oh sure yeah it's just that the, the you know string theory is all about aesthetic shapes too 
Is that right? They're just in 11 dimensions now. So, yeah. Ah, but it's still some notion of this shape. It's probably this because this is a simpler. That's right. This is a, a, a mathematically simpler or more symmetric um, uh, way of thinking about it. Right. So if there was, here's the thing, this might be a, this is a challenge, but this is what we like to do. Mm-hmm. What the if, and, and, and I'll note that for those who are new to, to our audience, we like to change as few things as possible. That's our judgment. Yes, that's right. our prejudice, yeah. That's our lazy hypothesis. And no, actually, it's, uh, it's uh, great art likes limitations. And so we change one thing. And, and here I'm suggesting, what the if there was never any assumption or even desire for any notion of perfection in any of the, in nature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so, you know, we can, we can blame Plato and his friends for a lot of this, the, or maybe the Pythagoreans, uh, the Pythagoreans too. All right. So let's say Pythagoras and Plato go sailing one day on the Aegean and there's a big storm and they both die. Right. Yeah. That's a great, what the, if. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry guys. A perfect storm. Ah, oh, perfect. Ah, uh, uh, perfect. Ah, uh, yeah. In, in, so it, an imperfect storm, storm. Of imperfection. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say Greek astronomy and mathematics never gets quite so obsessed with notions of perfection and specifically notions of circles. Right. Right. The question then becomes: So if we think about the circles, are for these early folks an explanatory tool? Right. So you've got this mystery, which is there are these lights in the sky that move around. And is there a way of understanding why they move in the way they do? And the answer that in our world was given is because they travel in circles. And then you say, why do they travel in circles? Because that's the most perfect form. Okay. So this was like astronomy for dummies. Yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Right. So if we're denying the Greeks that as an explanation, then, I don't know, I guess there's a couple other possibilities. One is they look for a different explanation. Right. What's what's another reason that these things are going around in the sky? They might give up on an explanation and say, eh, I've got no good explanation for this. That's just the way the world is. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The Greeks aren't the only civilization to develop sophisticated astronomy. Right. So the the Chinese and uh, the Aztecs and probably the Mayans all do it independently as well. Mm. And in, in um, India too? Um, Indian astronomy, you know, I don't know. They do do it. They do. I think it's unclear right. whether it's independent of the Chinese tradition. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's yeah. not something I know much right. about. Right. And did they also – so did the Aztecs and the Chinese – and the Mayans, as examples, did they also go with a hypothesis that were they also assuming perfection from the beginning? Generally, no, mm. actually. Yeah. So they all come up with sophisticated mathematical systems for predicting the motions of the planets. But 
they don't have the circle obsession and they don't have a the, the kind of layered sphere cosmology that the Greeks come up with mm. anyway. Mm. So I think that example or those examples suggest that the Greeks can still come up with a good system for predicting the motions of the planets. But what they might not have is they don't develop a particularly sophisticated system of physics for explaining why the star, the planets move the way they do. Right. In fact, okay, so th- there's a interesting essential sense? yeah it's an essential thing to note that <laughs> it's funny because just like i said a few minutes ago that great art or progress likes limitations mm-hmm, right because the limitation as long as the limit as long as your idea doesn't fit what you're observing as long as your guess about how what's really going on doesn't fit what you really see you will keep going and that, in fact, it could be very frustrating. So you just you can become obsessed with it, right? Yep. Ultimately, that's what pushes these things forward. So is it that did the Aztecs? Now the Aztecs and the Chinese very different cultures, obviously. But mm-hmm. did they were they not obsessed with trying to figure out an underlying pattern? Or did they just not need it? Well, the thing is that they they figure out the patterns very precisely. Right. So every 3.2 years, Mars is against the same same field of stars. Right there. Uh Super good at that. Uh What they're not particularly concerned with is providing a physical explanation for why Mars does that. Right. So they just... And is that because they were – here's an interesting thing. Interesting thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like maybe they were okay with, I guess, a mythical explanation. Sometimes. I mean, they, uh, there were certainly were mythical explanations. Right. But welding those to the mathematics was not a particularly important thing for them. Right. So it seems natural to us from the 21st century to say, well, I've got these empirical observations – and I want a physical explanation for them. But that's actually not an obvious connection to make. And if we want to give you know, credit to the, the Greeks, it's for this kind, of, this kind of pulling together, this questioning, saying, okay, I know it goes that way, but I want to know why. And I would like some kind of physical explanation. And this is a deep tension in Greek astronomy, essentially until people like Kepler and Galileo come along. And one of the, one of the things that makes modern science what it is, is demanding both of these things, both precise observation and prediction and a physical explanation for why those predictions are the way they are. Yeah, the physical things, it strikes me as most important that there is, I mean, it, what seems to me is there's an underlying sort of, I guess atheism isn't the right word, but there is a belief and, and a huge obsession or great desire to find a purely mechanical explanation for at least how things move, if not how they got started moving. Yeah, that's right. So it's 
we'd say a physical explanation or a naturalistic explanation. Right. The idea that uh, nature runs on its own principles, uh-huh, and right. and we should come up with our our explanations according to that. And so I think our our what the if is essentially we're trying to to prevent that from happening. Yes. In the Mediterranean, the way it did. Right. Right. And that then naturally raises the question of why does it happen in certain places on Earth and not in others, right? Why uh-huh. does it happen? All right. Why does it happen in the Mediterranean and not in Central America? And this is one of the great unanswered questions of history generally. Mm. And there have been many attempts to answer, and I, I, I feel no, per, no more persuaded by any of them at the moment. But it's essentially the question of why why science emerges where and when it does, which is like 17th century Europe. Yeah. Well, it seems to me perhaps it was just an enormous extra dose of egotism <laughs> dropped on <laughs> Greece or at that time, like the sense that we can figure this out. I mean, that's pretty... They set um, yeah, themselves right. a problem that, that they were okay with um, pursuing, even though it really lay far beyond their abilities at the time. Right. And this is, this is often pointed to that it helps to have a particular sense of the cosmos being put together in a, in a particular way. That is, Kepler thought, and Newton thought, and probably Galileo too, that God liked mathematics. So God had arranged the universe on mathematical principles so that humans could then understand it. Well, th- there it is right there. There's yeah. the ego. <laughs> They're mathematicians. So it natu- it, it's, a, it's not just egotistical people. It's egotistical mathematicians <laughs> who knew, right? And that said, clearly what we do our job and the thing we're most interested in is God's work. Yeah, that's right. And that's, um, it's important to remember that that was a controversial thing to say for a couple thousand years. Mm. The idea that mathematics was the royal road to truth. Even in Greece? Yes. Like if you go back to Aristotle, Aristotle distinguishes between two kinds of knowledge. There's intellectual knowledge, stuff you do in your head, like logic and philosophy. And then there's stuff you do with your hands. And stuff you do with your hands is like building things, right? You're, you get calluses on your fingers. You're a physical laborer and that that's inferior to pure thought. And we still have the legacy of this today. Right. And the, and it's, so this, is, this is kind of a, a, a strange corollary to us, is that mathematics was on the work with your hands side of things. <laughs> that is, it was generally not seen as a pure intellectual thing, but rather if you did mathematics, that meant you were like an engineer or an architect. You built stuff. That's what mathematics was for at the time. And then since astronomy is a subdiscipline of mathematics, astronomers have this inferiority complex for a millennium. For a, um, for a millennium. Yeah. 
Yeah, because everybody's looking down on them. They're oh, like, oh. look, you're just you're just a glorified construction worker. Wow. Like, I know you've got these equations and things, but that you're really just somebody who works with your hands. So Kepler's claim that Kepler and Galileo and, and those folks, so when they claim that mathematics can actually tell you something about transcendental truth, that, that it's more reliable than just pure thought is actually a really big upset to sort of the social hierarchy of human knowledge. Wow. So, so we can, I'm not judging, but, <laughs> uh, but I could say we can, for, uh, I'm going to, instead of just saying, oh, egotism, you know, which just sounds like haughty hubris, hubris among these mathematicians and astronomers, it was they were oppressed for a long time, and they just like you know like the geeks will inherit the earth. This was sounds like right. the beginning, <laughs> right? The data yeah, guys, exactly. revenge of the data entry guys, and mm-hmm. well, I was going to say end girls, but they the, the girls have been left out as always. It seems as always, yeah. yeah. So yes, that's so interesting. And so this is really it's the sounds like something that maybe that that when we were talking, using the Chinese and the Aztecs as and the Mayans as examples, did they not raise mathematics to this high stature? In That's this- right. Yeah. And this is one of the explanations that people sometimes like to give, uh, is that because the Chinese don't, the Chinese, there, there's never a Chinese equivalent to Pythagoras. Mm. Some, somebody who does try to weld mathematics to mystical divine truth in quite the same way, that they don't have that as a, a foundational thing. Oh, right. Okay. Now, you had said this, but it, sort of, it just clicked for me that it's right. It's the raising of mathematics to – it's not saying mathematics is superior to myth or religion or gods. Mm-hmm. It's that it is – it is one and the same. The mathematics yeah, that's is connected divine. together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And that's Kepler. That's one of the the arguments that Kepler gives for his new system. Is that it? And and Copernicus does this too. <clears throat> is that there? It's more divinely appropriate for the universe to be put together this way. So, like Copernicus has this whole section about how the sun, as this divine source of life, should be at the center of the universe. Ah, uh, <laughs> interesting. They can't help but judge. They can't help but say, oh, no, it's, it's this way because it should be, as opposed to just saying it is. It is. On the other hand, it sounds like it's that kind of attitude that does continue to push things forward. And so what, <laughs> a funny sort of twist here is that kids in mathematics, kids in math class, or maths, I guess, as they would say in the UK, in class – Say things like, "Why do I want?" You know, the kids who don't like it. What? What do I? What good is this? Right? What? What am I going to do with this? Why do I need to know all this stuff? Whereas, you know, it's just, it's just, I, it's useless to me. Whereas, way back at the beginning, <laughs> the mathematicians were persecuted because it was obviously useful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You, you're so useful. 
you, you get out of here. You know, yeah. uh, we'll get, I guess, get out of our ivory tower. And this is actually, this remains a deep tension within mathematics as a field. Should they justify themselves in terms of utility? Right. We can wow. do cool stuff with this. Right. Or on the grounds of aesthetic beauty and higher truth. And this, I, I don't see this going away anytime soon. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird side effect of the success of mathematics in practical problems that we have to have, that we are able to have that, um, that argument. Right. Now, the ultimate thing is to sort of bring it all back around is that the the reason, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, let's say, the reason that mathematics survives and grows and grows and grows in power is because it works. And the predictive power of it becomes incredible, right? I mean, I suppose that is something that the Greeks were unable to do is pre- use the mathematics to predict how something should look and then be able to look and find that it does work. Is that right? Well, it's, it depends on the thing. So the the motions of the planets and the stars is one of the first places where they are able to do that. But it turns out to be very hard to even do something like predict the, the trajectory of a thrown ball uh, for a long time. Yeah. But the idea that we can now build a telescope and name it after Kepler and put it in space, at least until it dies. Using this idea that allowed, uh, where this scientist took the leap to say, perhaps our notion of perfection is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think he wouldn't have said that the ellipse is imperfect, he just decided that our idea of what perfect, what is perfect is wrong. Yeah. Okay. Like a, a paradigm shift or a change in taste mm-hmm. uh, has opened up something that I don't even think we know where it's going to go. That we see all these planets everywhere. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's an extraordinary thing. Yeah that there are more planets than stars. And because of Kepler and the long road to Kepler and the long road from Kepler Mm -hmm. and the long many overnights it took for his overnight success, that we suddenly can look up at the sky and know with pretty great certainty that it is not full. It's full of not just all those stars, but for every one of those stars, there's a whole bunch of planets. And therefore, the odds, just like there were the odds of finding that there had to be so many planets and stars, of course, but so many planets around all those stars that a whole lot of them happened to be passing, you know, to, to cast shadows in our direction as opposed to all the other directions. Mm-hmm. means that also there's some percentage of those planets that may have life with mathematicians on them. That's right. <laughs> well, and that is one of the great questions, is will, will other civilizations of different kinds of animals come to the same conclusions about the nature of perfection that the Greeks and that Kepler did? And we don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it strikes me that there, there was one evolutionary thing that kept it going, which is that whoever could start predicting, in other words, whoever opened up, unlocked the next level of knowledge, was going to, that that was going to happen. That it, it, all it took was eventually, in other words, what we're saying is that our what the if about what, what the if this obsession with pushing a mathematics, understanding mathematics and saying mathematics is how the universe works without the obsession of pushing that forward, everyone would have just gone about not doing that. Basically, it's obsession. That somebody was always <laughs> going to be more obsessed than somebody else. Competition. Yeah, so a little bit of obsession can be a good thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And frankly, you should now thank all the astronomers. And if, they're, if they have a huge ego, you should say, I, I get it. I understand why you were oppressed for a long time. So we should be grateful for well, who's, who, who died on your, our imaginary ship? Plato? Uh, Plato and Pythagoras, yeah. So Plato and Pythagoras. Kids, when you're in school and their names come up in class, you know, don't complain that you're learning about them, especially Pythagoras. You know, you're going to learn that theorem. Mm -hmm. Know that that was really something special. Um, yeah, and be glad that um, he didn't die on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or by meteor strike. Meteor strike, Or yes. any other... <laughs> possible thing that would have been pretty extraordinary yeah so uh did kepler was he able to see the world appreciate what he had discovered no probably not so much i mean it's probably another 50 years before uh his and galileo's legacy really become um firmly established yeah kepler spends I mean, not just with his mathematics, but in terms of his religious beliefs and social status, too. So he's a Protestant, hmm. but he's living in Catholic countries for most of his life. So he's essentially one step ahead of the Counter-Reformation for most of his life, kind of getting chased from place to place. Hmm. And then his, his mother is accused of witchcraft, uh, and he again has to spend many years in legal battles trying to... Uh, to get her out. Boy, poor Kepler, trapped in legal battles. He needed better call Saul. And actually, it's interesting, one of his, one of his strategies for, for getting his mother acquitted, so she, the, 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 argue, the, the accusation made is that his mother had been consorting with demons. So he makes, so Kepler then suggests that no, it wasn't actually demons, but rather people who live on the moon... Uh, he called them selenites, uh, aliens. Sure. So he writes this this amazing document, which nowadays we would read as a science fiction story, mm. about the people who live on the moon and how they came down and visited his mother. And this more or less works. That is, people are like, oh, okay, yeah, it probably is more plausible that it was she was talking to people who live on the moon than she was talking to demons. Well, see, now that's fantastic. There's a situation where a what-the-if scenario saved a woman's life. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I'm guessing he didn't really believe this story, but he, he was like, uh, uh, what about, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, it's unclear, I think, how much he believed it. But it certainly wasn't unusual for people to think that um, folks lived on the moon at the time. Wow. 
uh, I must say, one of the amazing things about your being able to bring up all these different, the depth and the color of what actually was going on at the time great discoveries were made is things like this incredible thing, Kepler, you know, which is the, the, the pinnacle of our technological and scientific advancement and a literal ability to travel in the universe comes out of a time where <laughs> all kinds of other crazy yeah that's right non-scientific stuff was going on witchcraft amazing however <laughs> for halloween this is this, this since we're <laughs> recording this on halloween it might be that kepler's mother was actually a witch and it's the uh, yep. demons you know it, it the kepler is demon spawn and therefore uh-huh. Everything we have followed is actually witchcraft, and therefore we must change our judgment of witchcraft. And like a few people I do know already say that witchcraft is actually perfection. Yeah, I'm totally down for that. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. This is amazing. Fantastic. Colorful. What a what the if. What a what the if. You were out for a few episodes, and you are working on a book that I'm very excited about. Can you say anything about it? It is a book about Einstein's adventures during the First World War. And it's com- it'll, it uh, should, may be coming out in the spring. should be coming out in the spring. That's right. Yep. I'll definitely uh, pass along more details. Very exciting. Oh, and with that, I just got an email. Maybe that was it. From, my, <laughs> from the future. My pre-order is, is complete. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, as always. Thank you to you ifers, fellow ifers in the audience. We welcome your comments and your suggestions. We, we will run with your idea, you know, um, if we think it's uh, explosive enough. So feedback at whattheif.com. Shoot us a, any thoughts. Yeah, come if with us. Yeah. Come if with us. Exactly. That's right. Come if with us. Go to iTunes if you can also, whether you use iTunes or not. Giving us some stars there, five, would be great. Giving us a little review on iTunes would be super helpful and really helps us grow the show. And go to our website, lastly, uh, whattheif.com. You can listen to all our previous episodes. whole bunch of them. Next week. Next week we will gather and explore the future and the present and the past in another strange way. Whereupon we will suddenly have the urge to scream and shout. What? what the? If, 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 if.